Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hello, I'm Fatma Sayed, sitting in for Jesse Brown this week. Joining me today is freelance investigative journalist Maggie Rahr from Nova Scotia. Hey Maggie, thanks for being here. Hey Fatima, thanks so much for having me. So Maggie, today's going to be like a roller coaster of emotions. I'm ready. <laughs> We're going to start by talking about the Canadian Armed Forces and how it's in crisis after a series of sexual misconduct allegation against senior members that has seen some huge high-profile resignations. My question, has the media coverage failed the women that have come forward in this and every other story like this? And our second topic is going to be the Alberta's war room belief that an animated movie about Bigfoot is brainwashing kids with lies about the oil and gas industry. It's a wild ride. Let's get it. <laughs> this episode of Candle and Shortcuts is brought to you by Donald Campbell, Matt Grantham, Shelley Blanco, Willie Costello, Dylan Weisner, Connor Ware, Armin Kraus, and Scoot Doot. I'm Scoot Doot, a project manager and ultimate Frisbee superstar from Toronto. I support Canada Land because there's too much damn misinformation and disinformation being spread in memes, podcasts, Fox News, and YouTube videos. We definitely need more quality investigative journalism such as Canada Land to help battle it. And Commons is friggin' amazing. So Maggie, for the past several months, the Canadian Armed Forces has been facing multiple investigations regarding sexual misconduct. To briefly catch listeners up if they haven't been following it as closely as I know you and I have, back in February, Global News first reported that former Chief of Defense Staff General Jonathan Vance was facing allegations of sexual misconduct with female subordinates. This was a huge deal because General Vance outranks every other member of the Canadian military. He denies all the allegations. 
Uh, a little while after that, his successor, Admiral Art MacDonald, stepped down because a separate complaint was lodged against him for sexual misconduct against a female junior officer back when he was captain. Then last week, CBC News reported that the man in charge of human resources for the Canadian Armed Forces has also been investigated over multiple allegations of inappropriate behavior with female subordinates. This week, Lieutenant Colonel Eleanor Taylor, a senior and widely respected infantry officer on track for top leadership, quit in disgust over all these allegations. In her resignation email, she wrote, quote, I am sickened by ongoing investigations of sexual misconduct among our key leaders. Unfortunately, I am not surprised. I am also certain that the scope of the problem has yet to be exposed. Lieutenant Colonel Taylor was one of the few women to have commanded an infantry company during the Afghan war for the Canadian Armed Forces, and she noted in her email that she has been, quote, both a victim of and participant in a damaging cycle of silence that she was not proud of. Damn. That's heavy stuff, Maggie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think just, you know, right off the top, we need to acknowledge that not unlike the police, the military is... Um, an institution that is built for and has historically been led by white men. So they are always going to be centered and protected. But yeah, the thing that really strikes me about that letter from Taylor there is, um, Lieutenant Colonel Taylor, sorry, I should say, is her admission of complicity, which you just do not hear ever. I think it's super rare, and that's the part that struck me the most. It's staggering. Especially because she's one of the few, if not like a very rare female yeah. senior official in the military. And for her to admit yeah. that not only has she faced it, but she has been part of it. Honestly, it, it sat with me for a long time. Yeah, and I, you know, when I think about um, media coverage of these kinds of stories, the thing that I want more of is an examination of institutional failure who are the people who looked the other way who promoted abusive men who allowed um who drove uh, survivors of sexual assault out of their roles who drove them underground who denied their claims and gaslit them and you know ruined their careers while allowing these perpetrators to enjoy a sense of freedom and protection and thrive in their roles and that often i think is part of the coverage that we don't hear about. So I think it's really, this is an extraordinary moment of leadership from Lieutenant Colonel Taylor. And I really hope to hear and see more of that from men involved. She wrote her resignation letter so bluntly, uh -huh. really took everyone aback. And, and for a second, there seemed to be a moment where everyone who had ever worked with the Canadian military or was you know, aware of the existence of someone like Lieutenant Colonel mm -hmm. Taylor was just shocked into silence. It's interesting to me because, so I covered the Canadian military as one of my first stories out of J school. So in, in 2017, I was a fellow at the Walrus and I got an email from Amy Graham, who's a former Canadian Armed Forces officer. And she right. detailed that she was part of a, a lawsuit. And this is a very famous case. And she detailed just the extent of sexual misconduct and abuse that she faced. Yeah. I remember this conversation so vividly. She described how a master corporal officer dangled her underwear, which she kept in a closed cabinet in near her bed, in front of everyone during a routine room inspection. 
and and later how she was sexually assaulted during a mandatory stop in Cyprus in 2010, where she was one of two women in the 129th member group. And each time she said she was told to respect the chain of command that, you know, she she felt like silenced. Yeah. But it made her afraid. And, of course, if we go into the timeline of this, so Graham was one of, among the first to take her experiences to court and win against her, her transgressor. Um, and she joined a class action suit with 200 other members. But this is not the first time the Canadian military has tried to fix the problem, right? No. And I'm, yeah. I'm hoping we can get into this because the media coverage of today seems so similar to the media coverage of past when this was first coming out. You're taking the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> So just a brief timeline. In 1998, there was a standard for harassment and racism prevention program in the Canadian military that failed very, very quickly. The efforts to make change on this really started in in 2015, when former Justice Marie Deschamps Mm -hmm. was put in charge of a task force that basically went on a fact-finding mission to find out exactly what the issues of sexual assault and harassment were in the military. She found out, and I'm quoting from the report, an underlying sexualized culture in the Canadian Armed Forces that is hostile to women and LGBTQ members. And she said that the problem was the nature of the organization itself. The Armed Forces has its own judicial system. It has the ability to arrest and prosecute its own members. And she identified as a problem and made 10 recommendations Mm -hmm. to eliminate this environment. That led to the creation of Operation Honor by General Jonathan Vance. Ding, ding. General Jonathan Vance creates Operation Honor. And this announcement made the Canadian Armed Forces the first military institution in the world to deal with sexual assault as an operation. It was a huge deal. I remember the headlines from that time, and I was so in awe that, wow, this is going to create some much-needed change. And then I had the opportunity to interview the woman who was put in charge of this, General Christine Whitecross, who is Canada's first female three-star general and the first female chief of military personnel. And I remember Mm -hmm. sitting talking to her, and she was so hopeful about the change that Operation Honor and the Dishomp Report would create and how transformed the military would be afterwards. And I saw her on TV last week, and she was so disappointed. Yeah, dejected. So here's my question, Maggie. I'm surprised this isn't a bigger deal. I'm surprised that this isn't all we're talking about. And I wonder if maybe it's because of the way the media is covering the story or if it's something else. So what's your general impression been having taken into account this entire history? I mean, when I was thinking about this, uh, coming in and talking um, with you about this today, I made this note exactly about that, about the Deschamps report and how I think one of the failures of journalism right now is that we still refer to that report, which came out six years ago, as like, hey, here's what we need to do. Let's just uh, examine the findings and, um, you know, employ those findings. And then, of course, we cannot have abusive men helming the reparation efforts, right? Like that should go without saying. But I have not seen, and it's possible that it's out there and I missed it, I have not seen an incisive investigative unpacking of exactly that, that these huge efforts that can be introduced to try to address systemic issues, right? This is a systemic generations long issue resulting from misogyny and, you know, let's face it, white supremacy, Mm -hmm. but the military is still run by white men. And when white men go unchallenged and unchecked, 
in any organization, then this kind of abuse will persist. And guess who continues to run most of our newsrooms and our news outlets? So there's a lack of critical thinking at the editorial and leadership level of our news outlets. So there isn't a driving sense of like, we as reporters and journalists must do better to cover effectively what a fucking disaster this is and the Mm -hmm. omnipresent and absolutely devastating results of this continued abuse. And I mean, I think just to loop it back into Lieutenant Colonel Taylor using such strong language, like these are not the words that we expect to hear from someone in such a high ranking position in the military because they're known for being restrained, right? And careful about what they're saying. And for her to use words like disgusted and sickening, it really is shocking. And I don't feel that the media is doing its job in reflecting the absolute arses out of her, excuse the maritime expression, of a failure. One of the things I, I really struggle with is, as you said, the Deschamps report came out six years ago. And for the life of me, I couldn't find a single timeline. Right. Where's the accountability? Yeah. Which actions were taken that were suggested? What happened? Did it peter out? Where did the money come from? Where did the money go? Has there been any accountability? So one of the things that I think about when it comes to the coverage of of gendered abuse and violence is how we frame a story, right? It's so important to frame the story, in my opinion, in a way that empowers the victim's story. Yeah. As much as it discredits or questions, rather, questions is a better word, her or his abuser, right? Right, right. But the framing of all of the Canadian military stories I've seen have been very male-heavy because, yeah. of course, all the people implicated are male. Right. And the story has, has sort of taken a turn from the actual experiences of the victims to the procedural stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, when I was... Googling this, it was very hard to find, like, you know, former female Canadian military officer comes forward with allegations against general. Like, yeah. those were very rare framing. Yeah. Most of it was, like, Sajan, like, the, the Minister of Defense, uh-huh. doubles down in heated testimony over <laughs> the handling of Vance allegation. But that's not the story, right? The story at the end of the day is is the courage with which these officers, these female officers came forward about the moments they were most yes. vulnerable and frightened and unsafe and the moments they lost faith in, in their humanity, that's the story. And I think our, our framing that focuses on political theatrics, on the actual procedure of accountability, on what happens next, often pushes that to the bottom of news coverage when it should be front and center. You know what's so funny? I'm actually like, of course, I completely agree with you, but I'm of two minds about that because on the one hand, when we do center the voices of survivors and people who have experienced sexual violation at any degree, there's always a risk. And I've reported a lot on sexual violation. I do not want to further harm. And even the use Mm -hmm. of the word scandal, I find to be disappointing. It's like scandal has a connotation of gossip and something kind of like greasy. Whereas, you know, in my estimation, there's nothing more serious than, as you say, somebody coming forward and summoning the courage to talk about what is likely the most, uh, among the most darkest experiences of their lives, right? But the risk of opening a story with a survivor 
describing that moment and then moving on as if that's all they are. Mm -hmm. I also find that disturbing. And what, what I am seeking and not finding in media coverage is less of the political talking heads about like, this is an outrage. What I want is a deep dive and investigative examination of who are the figures within the military who failed And it can't all be people coming forward like Lieutenant Colonel Taylor saying, look, I was a part of this. And she may decide at some point that she wants to name names and get into details and like all the power to her for that. But I want journalism that examines the lack of accountability and the moments of failure. And I want precision in that reporting so that we can actually hold, we can have an image, like a portrait of the system in collapse But at the same time, we need to hold up the integrity of the voices of people who have been harmed and and we need to honor them as dimensional human beings at the same time. I wonder if it's the fact that we only cover these issues when someone comes forward Mm. that people are afraid to talk with us. Right. You know, when I think about what we can do to make it better, there are very few places that have a women's reporter, for lack of a better term. But I feel like if if journalists opened the channels of communications more, these stories would be amplified in in a way that was more powerful and in a way that could lead to change. And I'm I'm starting to see that with the Canadian military coverage. And and I want to give a huge shout-out to Mercedes Stevenson at Global News, who has has basically been leading this and, and... really crushing it on all levels and and doing it with such poise and grace and care. I also have a little uh, shout out I wanted to give, actually. There was an Air Force uh, reservist and a survivor who was drugged and raped on The Current on CBC the other day. Her name is Christine Wood. Um, And Matt Galloway did something that I've never heard a man do in uh, an interview before, where he said he referred to the abuse that she suffered and he acknowledged the sensitivity of the moment but he, he said, say what you're comfortable with. I know that you have agreed to, to talk about what happened. This is incredibly personal. And so, I mean, really just say as much as you're comfortable with. Um, what okay. can you tell us about what happened in 2011? Um, I'd been at a, uh, a function. That shouldn't be a staggering moment, but it was. So I just wanted to say thanks, Matt Galloway, for that. I want to thank one more person while we're thanking people for doing the coverage <laughs> like and, an and, and shouting out people that we could all learn from. Faiza Amin at City TV has been working with Omni on this incredible series about women suffering from abuse. Oh, wow. They've called it Behind Closed Doors, and it focuses on domestic violence. It's an eight-part series that started this week. Oh, damn. For me, the most powerful thing is that They're talking to women who don't necessarily speak English very well. The day I was physically abused for the first time, I thought about leaving this hell and starting over with a new life. I deserve it. I know my son deserves to get a positive, good environment too. I think that is incredible because it it shows that this is a multi-layered problem. Mm. And so often we don't, talk to those who are suffering the most yes. because of barriers like language yeah. and media illiteracy among certain communities. Yeah. And and I do want to caveat with the fact that the Canadian military and domestic violence are clearly very, very different issues, and I'm not trying to make an equivalence between them. I'm just saying that gendered abuse and violence is such a nuanced topic, yes. and 
I think society only benefits if we learn how to cover it properly. There's no corner of the world, there's no industry, there's no community that um, is spared when it comes to intimate partner violence. And that it, there is an invisibility there. I do think there's a shift happening and, and it is interesting to me and I'm, I'm hopeful that it will lead to better media coverage. And a lot of it is coming from the UK mm. with the horrible murder of Sarah Everard, who is a 33-year-old woman who went missing while walking home from work one day and was later found to have been killed, uh, allegedly, by a police officer. And it started this conversation. I don't know, Maggie, if you've seen this, but my Instagram yeah. and my, my Twitter feed lately has just been women talking about how they keep safe, yeah. conversations about how when they were younger they were taught to, you know, hold keys yeah. in their hands in a certain way. So if they were ever attacked, they could, you know, fight back oh, yeah. about the things they do, like, you know pretend to be on a call, put a headphone in on a subway, even if you're not listening to anything. All these things that I have done, that I'm sure you have done, that every woman listening has done. And the text that we all send to each other, right? Text me when you get home. Yes. Which is now a a hashtag. I didn't bat an eye to that before. And then when this conversation started, I realized, wow, this very normal thing that has always been a part of my life is actually not normal at all. Yeah. And how have we never spoken about this till now? Yeah, and just the trauma that's associated with that, of like the quiet undertone of omnipresent trauma, of needing to tell your friend that you're still alive when you get home. It's just one of those moments illuminating like that community care and uh, instinct to care for each other is often driven by women, trans people, and non-binary people, and that emotional labor and burden needs to be shared. And so often the community burden is a fight against institutions like the military, like the police, that dominate media coverage when it comes to issues of gendered abuse and violence because they control so much of the information that we are able to access about these things. We see that playing out just today in Georgia where eight people were killed, six of which were Asian women. How do you think this story fits into the conversation we're trying to have about the coverage of gendered abuse and violence. Of course, I have to say that I was horrified to hear and read this. I mean, it's just fucking horrific and it's the latest and most violent in a string of attacks on Asian Americans in particular, though this has also been happening in Canada in our country. It's Wednesday morning, so um, this is really only the the next day, uh, the very, very early stages of coverage, and there may be details and bits of the story to emerge that have yet to come out. So what we're working with now is eight victims, six identified as um, Asian and possibly, you know, living in precarity in terms of status in America. I mean, the early reporting is predictably very disappointing. Motivation unclear being two words. And when you're you have six victims of the same of the same racial demographic the pause taken by police taken by politicians taken by authorities at any level before denoting that this is racially motivated the hesitance to use the words hate crime is a function of white supremacy i'm 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 a white person and i think uh 
white people in media in particular need to um, step up and be accountable for our role and complicity and failure to appropriately uh, cover this. On that note, I also just want to kind of, because this is a media podcast to Asian uh, reporters and journalists of Asian descent, I'm just really sending love because I can only imagine what it would be like to be working in media and and have a lot of the coverage saturated with hatred targeted at you and to have to keep working and meet your deadlines and filing. And um, it, yeah, it's such a massive burden. So I want to say thank you and send solidarity yeah, to our um, Asian friends in, in media and yeah, just say thank you for your contributions. Becky, you've done shortcuts before, so you know that this show duly notes news that might have been overlooked in the past week or so. I have two very quick ones, and um, then we'll go to yours. Does that work? Go for it. So it's been a week for Canadian monopolies. This week we learned that Rogers has agreed to a $26 billion deal to buy Calgary-based Shaw. This would create Canada's second biggest telecom. I'm not sure what will be done, if these deals will be reviewed by the Competition Bureau and the CRTC when it comes to the Rogers and the Department of Innovation, Science and Economic Development. But honestly, who knows what's going on uh, to actually stop it. (laughs) I think the response to the decision by all these companies uh, honestly created like a wave of nihilism among the journalist community where it was like, well, of course, this was bound to happen. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen next? So... Total disaster. (laughs) Thank you for finishing my sentence. That's what's coming next. (laughs) Spoiler. (laughs) Uh, Duly noted. Maggie, what do you have for us? So there is a great uh, and very cool journalist working for Torstar for the Toronto Star called Evie Kwong, who is a clever and uh, critical voice in the Canadian media landscape right now, who's um, launched this very cool digital feature, a video series. The goal is to combat vaccine hesitancy. Hello, my name is Joe Zivikata. I'm the Premier of Nunavut. About a month ago, I got vaccinated uh, against the COVID-19 virus. Dr. Govardhanam, University of Toronto. Dr. Upton Allen, after I received the vaccine, I was perfectly okay and I was able to work. And I just think it's a really lovely feature that focuses voices that are often overlooked, uh, that was built in a very thoughtful way and delivered to us by uh, one of my um, favorite voices in the journalism landscape in this country. So major shout out to Evie Kwong, as always. I love Evie and... Oh, um, shit. Is it Evie? Oh, my God. Evie, Evie. I'm sorry, Evie. (laughs) I've been only loving you from afar. (laughs) Basically, we love you. And that is also what I wanted to duly note. It's so great because she's basically tried to get people from all different communities to talk about how they got the vaccine in their language. Mm. Um, And it warms my heart. And I showed my mom the one in Urdu. So keep doing what you do, Evie. You're great. We love you. Thank you for this. Yes. Big fan. Uh, duly noted. Is that, do I, do I do that? I don't know. <laughs> duly okay. note this? I don't even know. <laughs> I did have one other little thing I wanted to add in if that's okay. Our uh, Nova Scotia 
wonderful actor, Elliot Page, was on the cover of Time magazine. And um, I mean, I felt a swell of pride and teared up when I saw these beautiful images and read the profile. But the thing I want to note is that there are lots of excellent uh, trans writers out there who are not being invited to write about trans people. A lot of the time when we have cisgendered people writing about trans folks, there's a dilution in the reporting and there's a depth that's missing and it can be kind of shrunken down into like, this person got a haircut, (laughs) you know, Um, instead of a dimensional portrait. Um, So yeah, I just wanted to say thank you to Uh, the trans writers and journalists who are out there. And fuck, I hope we get to hear more of your work soon. I think that it will all be better for it. Duly noted. So duly noted. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. So you can dismiss this as, quotes merely a kid's show, but it's clear that they developed content designed to defame in the most vicious way possible in the, in the impressionable minds of kids the largest industry in the province. And so we can... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. So that was Alberta Premier Jason Kenney very seriously offering his two cents on one of the oddest stories to manifest this year. Listeners of the show will likely recall that Kenny's Energy War Room, officially called the Canadian Energy Center, was part <laughs> of his campaign pledge to fight back against misinformation about Alberta's oil industry. Their latest target is a new Netflix made-in-America movie, The Bigfoot Family, 
which they say is defaming the industry, quote, in the most vicious way possible, and is villainizing energy workers. The war room started a petition to tell the truth about Canada's energy sector. This story is so weird. I love it. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, who's who's the villain again? Like, we're talking about propaganda. You have a literal, quote-unquote, war room to try to figure out how to keep extracting fucking oil from the earth. How to convince, like, you're a, basically a lobby group, but now you're worried about the propaganda of a fucking kids movie on Netflix about Bigfoot. Um, <laughs> like, it's so good. Oh, my God, I love it. In the grand scheme of bingo cards to be made about my life, I did not see this one coming. I, I did not envision this one coming. Um, it, it's basically, <laughs> like, an SNL sketch come to life, or, like, an onion story that they haven't thought of yet. Yeah, it's like blaming <laughs> ALF for UFO enthusiasts or something. <laughs> okay, but, but jokes sense. aside, Maggie, I do want to talk about this yes, because yes. Um, as, as odd as it is, um, it's interesting because we're talking about misinformation and how the energy industry is grappling with media coverage about them. You have not watched the movie, right? I have not seen the movie. I'm very sorry. Well, I watched the movie, and I did not like it, and I love animated movies, so my public service to everyone today is to provide a plot summary so no one has to watch it. Here we go. So the movie is actually set in Alaska. There is a government order to drill oil from the largest wildlife reserve in Alaska. The company is called Extract. That's X-T-R-A-K-T which, according to some protesters and environmentally conscious people, is lying about the fact that their extracting uh, actions will have zero environmental impact in this very deserted mining town in Alaska. When we arrive at this place, there's guards and drones and electric fences blocking entry to the actual site. So Bigfoot decides that he's going to go to Alaska and help these people save this wildlife reserve. He is apprehended by the guards that are protecting this extracting site. That leads to the mother and son driving to Alaska all the way to save him with a grizzly bear and a raccoon. This is where we see Canada. As they're driving from the States to Alaska, they obviously drive through Canada. We see um, a Mountie checking them in in a very, very polite way. We see an ice skate monument. We see a welcome to curling city sign, a maple syrup monument, a statue of an indigenous person, a raccoon monument. All your stereotypes about Canada are there. I really think we need to be more angry about this, but I digress. When they arrive, the guards try to kidnap the boy to try and stop him from finding his father. Boy meets a wolf. They make a promise to each other that if the wolf doesn't kill the boy the boy will help save the wolf's land. The boy and the wolf find the site. He starts videoing all the oil spills and activity happening, which is clearly making an environmental impact. He infiltrates the facility, finds that the CEO is actually lying about everything, records a conversation between the CEO and a researcher about the difficulties of drilling into frozen ground. The researcher tells him that the drilling will flood the entire valley and create a huge environmental impact. The CEO says, quote, who's watching, quote, let's do this anyway. 
The kid (laughs) tries to run away, gets caught by a guard who shoves him into a hole where he finds the dad. The company launches an attack against the family that includes drones. The family escapes the mine. There is an explosion. The oil catches fire. The son has like this moment in daylight where he tries to upload the video. And as they're falling into the water, he succeeds. It's a happy ending. They save the site. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here's my theory. (laughs) I think that Alberta is mad about this because this actually happened or almost happened in Alberta in the 1950s when Alberta approved a project to detonate as many as 100 nuclear weapons near Fort McMurray to help extract oil. And that plan was canceled in 1963 when the federal government joined a ban on nuclear testing. Uh Um, But beyond that, the story is super fictional, super dumb, a waste of my time. And (laughs) I can't believe that it is trending in Canada and that we all have to watch this movie that cost $20 million to make. Meanwhile, Alberta's war room currently is leading a campaign against this children's cartoon yeah has 30 million dollars to their name yeah listen i i mean the movie whatever <laughs> like <laughs> i don't i'm not gonna watch it i summarize it for you you don't have to and, and thank you thank you so much for your service <laughs> i'm sorry i hope you got some good snacks out of it at least yeah i mean i think the thing that i want to remain vigilant about and uh kind of not skim over is that this group, this quote unquote war room is um, set to uh, get $12 million in taxpayer funds, which is atrocious and unforgivable. And uh, from my perspective, we need to be always keeping a very close eye on those who seek to extract um, resources from the earth and the results of said extraction often meaning uh, violence against um, indigenous people. So while I'm more than happy to sit here and crack jokes with you about this fucking Bigfoot movie (laughs) and Jason Kenny, like, are you fucking kidding me? Nope. Like it's also like, what do you think these kids are going to watch this movie? And then when they uh, become adults that they're going to have like an environmentally sound approach to living if we're just in time for the fucking apocalypse, like it doesn't like, I really don't understand the math, but yeah, just on a serious note, I just wanted to say that like the bigger issue here is that uh, no taxpayer money should be going to fund um, these rich megalomaniacs who are anti-indigenous to the core. uh, And that's pretty much it. Well, more than that, I think it's about media coverage. Jason Kenney and the Alberta government, his energy minister, everyone is staunchly defending this and using the fact that it's an international story as a success. And I don't understand that. I think the oil industry has to seriously grapple with the fact that they there needs to be a conversation between them and media about what nuanced coverage means. And it, it can't just be an attack each other kind of relationship. I, I think at some point, the oil industry and Alberta needs to realize that media coverage is going to be hard. That's our job. A reporter's job is to hold these industries to account. Yeah. And there's a pandemic happening. There were a thousand layoffs reported at Synovus. There are bigger things happening in Alberta than this Netflix movie. Also, like, come on, this it's such a it's such a 
weak sauce move to kind of like make it about the workers and to bring it back. It's like, you're attacking our workers. It's like, no, we're not. We're, we're attacking the billionaires and millionaires at the top who are using their position and influence and power to destroy our land and, and gather more money. I have nothing against someone in Alberta who's, you know, trying to protect their family by paying the bills or whatever, but we've, there's just got to be a better way to do it. Kenny, hilariously said that the fact that a British tabloid picked up that story is proof the War Rooms campaign against Netflix was a massive success for Alberta. No, they're laughing at us, Jason. They're fucking laughing at us. That's what this is, okay? And that's your Canada Land Shortcuts. If you liked it or you hated it, you can email Jesse about it jesse at canadaland.com he reads everything you send i'm fatma sayed and you can find me on twitter at fatma b sayed canadaland's on twitter at canadaland maggie where can people find you i'm also on twitter it's real maggie rar uh, r-a-h-r our website is canadaland.com this episode was produced by tiffany lamb with additional production by kevin sexton our managing editor is andrea schmidt our theme music is by so called Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to canadaland.com join. Mm-hmm.